Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're going to be concluding the book 15,000 Miles and a Catch by Captain Raymond Rallier de Batty, published in 1922. This is part 13 and we'll be finishing chapters 10 and 11. Now going forward into episode 101 we have a great new book lined up. Now we'll be finishing this one. But the name of the podcast is going to be changing. It's a one-off move, and it's done primarily because people are giving me the feedback that smart speakers, uh, Google Assistant, Alexa, Bixby, and uh, Siri seem to have some problems understanding the phrase rare nautical reads. And so we'll be changing the name of the podcast to The Mariner's Library. It'll be the same format, the same kinds of books. I welcome your ideas on other books that I might include here. Moving forward, it'll be the Mariner's Library. Chapter 10 It is unnecessary to say that the greeting between Captain de Aste and myself was of the heartiest kind. Each of us was rejoiced to find a brother, Frenchman, in Kogulian, and we were the best of friends at once. Captain de Aste was a young fellow of my own age, tall, well set up, and with a black beard. He was full of gaiety and courage though he had encountered many perils since coming to the island of desolation. He had a square-rigged ship, utterly unsuited for the tacking required in these waters, with their narrow bays and constant squalls. It had been calm when the captain first sighted this wild country, and in the innocence of his heart he believed the fine weather would last. But during the calm he nearly drifted onto Cox Point, and then a southwest gale sprung up and sent him scudding northward onto Castries Island, Here he anchored, but the terrific swell dragged his cable chains till they nearly broke, and afterwards, when the gale was over, he broke one of the flukes of his anchor in hauling it out of the rocky bottom. He ran for Wynock Bay, and stayed there three months, finding a fairly good anchorage, and not caring to leave the shelter for another encounter with Kogulian squalls. He was glad to find that Howe Island close by was swarming with seals, As his motorboat had a broken battery, he rigged up a sail on her and got plenty of blubber as provender for a very fine melting engine which excited my envy and admiration. It was one which would boil two tons at a time. Captain de Aste told me all these incidents in his vivacious way, and late into the night we talked together, one story of adventure leading to another, though half the tale was still untold. It was a great night, a great talk. You may imagine that when two French seamen get together and when one of them has been on a desert island for ten months of loneliness and the other has come straight from France with the latest news of Paris, there is much to say. Many of de Aste's crew were from Marseille and it amused me immensely to hear the southern patois again. And the youngest among them was a little cabin boy only ten years old whom they called Jean Bert after the great navigator. He had a companion not much older than himself and these two youngsters were little gamins of Montmartre, neither of whom had been to sea before. Poor urchins! They seemed happy enough, and they were petted by the captain and the crew, but I could not help thinking of that other little cabin boy of ten years old, whose tiny grave I had seen amongst the mounds on Grave Island. I was unable to stay more than one day with my gallant compatriot, because the whale steamer, having obtained the petrol for which Captain Aste had no further use owing to the breakdown of his motor launch, was anxious to return to the Jeanne d'Arc. I went with them, of course, promising to Aste that I would visit him again with the J.B. Charcot and our company. In fulfilment of this promise, we set sail towards the end of December from Observatory Bay 
and were favoured by a spell of fair weather. We were at sea on Christmas night, and although we did not have a great feast, we celebrated the occasion by a little rebellion, as we say in France, after the change of watch at midnight, cracking our last bottle of wine and drinking to all our loved ones in France. As we rounded Fuller's Island, Captain d'Aste and his men saw us, and being in a hurry to meet us and to reconnoitre the ship in which we had had so many adventures, they rode out to us. We hoisted our flag in salutation, and presently they came on board, expressing their profound astonishment, like our Norwegian friends, at the smallness of our catch. Captain d'Aste stayed to dinner and all the following day, and we did our best for him in the way of food, but better than the food was the conversation which flavoured it. Henry, I regret to say, was still very ill, but he brightened up with the gladness of hearing news from France and chatted with this fine French seaman. Then we exchanged gifts, receiving sweets, chocolates, gingerbread, dried plums and other toothsome things, which included a barrel of salt pork. We also asked for some rum, as our men were facing a time of rough toil in the way of seal hunting and blubber boiling. We decided, however, that it would not be fair to hunt into Aste's waters, as he was a prisoner there, so with Agne, I went on a boat trip to explore other bays round and about the Sunrise Islands. It was a dangerous voyage, and once again Agne and I were caught in an ugly sea with a strong nor'wester. We pulled and pulled and did not seem to make any headway. It was grim work and tested our strength and endurance to the last ounce. But at last, we touched Dauphine Island, and with a shout of gladness, dragged our boat on shore. We were on the lookout for fur seals, for we had been told that they were to be found in this part of Kogulian, but we did not find any, and indeed we did not see a single fur seal during the whole of our stay in Kogulian. From Dauphine Island we went across to Castries and found a long bay on the east side, so extremely narrow that it could be stretched by two cables length. There was no such thing as Terra Reef as marked on the chart, but there were a number of small breakers nearer to the coast. We found a number of albatrosses and poked them off their nests to get at their eggs, but we had to be careful of their tremendous beaks. We lived on eggs at this time and found that two from an albatross's nest were sufficient to make an omelette big enough for six hungry men. After this trip, we said farewell to our good friend Captain d'Aste and sailed off to Harbour Island, where, as the reader may remember, we had found the five big kettles. It was the last we saw of the Carmen. But before describing our future adventures, I think it well to mention the good fortune which befell the captain. He did not find it in Kogulian, though he killed many seals and made much oil. It came to him when he returned to France, for he married the lady who was the owner of his ship. I called on her when I also had found my way back to France, and she was a most charming and interesting woman. Captain de Aste is now again in Kogulian with a better ship on another great sealing expedition. After this, we made our headquarters for a time in Elizabeth Harbour, where there were a great many seals. It was a very dangerous entrance, full of rocks which are invisible in calm water, but lash the sea into great breakers during a north gale. We had brought another big kettle, and a great supply of wood from Harbour Island, and we settled down to the hardest work of all the time we spent on the island of desolation. We built a furnace with stones and turf at the foot of Mount Bailey, and for a month we did nothing but kill seals and melt blubber. I will spare my readers the horrors of a detailed description. I have already given an idea of the horrid business of hunting seals, of the rocks running with blood, of those great monsters struggling and fighting till a bullet put an end to them, of the nasty butcher's work of skinning them and cutting up the blubber. It was dirty work, and the memory of it makes my gorge rise. In a few days, 
we were soaked in oil. It worked its way into the warp and woof of our clothes until they were sticky and stiff and slimy and stinking with it. I shall never forget the nauseous feeling which came over me every morning when I had to put on those working clothes. I shuddered when I put on the trousers. I sickened when I put on the jacket. The grease plastered our hair and oozed through every pore of our skin. Everything on the ship was full of oil. The deck was slippery with it. It found its way into every crack and cranny. It got into our food. It made my papers greasy when I tried to write my notes. To make matters worse, much of our work was in vain and had to be done all over again, in consequence of two strokes of ill fortune. We had been killing all day in Bailey Bay when, owing to the darkness and a rough sea, we had to leave the blubber in a heap covered with tarpaulin and stones. We went on foot to the J.B. Charcot, and next day it was too rough to fetch the boat. Then Agne and LaRose and I went to bring back our blubber, but it had disappeared. The tarpaulin was almost flat on the ground, the boulders were still placed upon it, but two tons of blubber had gone. There was no mystery about the manner of its disappearance. Hundreds of giant petrels, birds as big as albatrosses, sat around gorged to repletion and in a sleepy stupor. It was a disgusting and loathsome sight. Dante himself imagined no more obscene sight in hell than those bestial birds swollen with the blubber they had devoured. Well, that was a serious loss to us, but a few days later, a worse calamity befell us. The ground around our factory, as we called our primitive melting furnace and pots, was soaked in oil, and before going abroad each night, we used to throw water over the furnace to put out the glowing embers. But one night, a little fire must have been left smouldering, and as we reckoned afterwards, at about 2am, the fire flared up and caught with its hot breath the large tank of oil which we had left ready for filling the casks. There must have been a tremendous bonfire, but the man on watch happened to be fast asleep, so did not see the glory or the horror of it. We knew nothing about our second calamity until early next morning, before taking coffee, the men set out to light the furnace. They came back quickly, and Henry and I could see by their very long faces and gloomy looks that something bad had happened. Speak up, I said. What's the matter? What on earth is wrong with you? They could hardly be prevailed upon to tell the news, but little by little the whole tragedy was revealed to us. The oil in the tank had burnt out, and the flames had licked up a row of eighteen full casks out of the fifty we had stored there, so completely that only the iron hoops were left. That was eight days' hard labour lost. We could have sat down and wept at the thought of it. But that being a foolish thing to do, after all, we went to work again instead, and by the 5th of February of 1909 we had killed all the seals in the neighbourhood and filled all the casks that we had with us, which we tied together in tens, floated out to sea, towed to the ship and hauled on board. We sailed back to Sandy Cove in search of more seals, but there were only a few, so we set off for the north of Howe Island, or White Bay. Bad weather set in, and we were beaten back twice. We tramped across to Observatory Bay and wrote a message for the Norwegians, which we put in a bottle and tied to the key of the German house, so that they would be sure to find it. Then, with the little ship, we left Sandy Cove again and sailed north to Cape Francis. It was then the 15th of February, and we noticed how the sea was breaking over hidden reefs. Henry made a remark about them. You see what a lot of uncharted rocks there are about, he said. We shall have to keep a sharp lookout. No sooner were the words out of his mouth 
than there was a crashing, grinding noise. The bottom of our ship, sailing at many knots in a strong north wind, ripped over a reef, and her stern stuck fast on one of the rocks. Here was a vile stroke of ill luck. Our position was perilous in the extreme. A gale was blowing as usual, and though we lowered the sails with the exception of the jib, we swung round to eastward, the long rolling swell lashing up against the stem of the ship. The tide was going down, and the weather was so threatening that I advised Henry to leave the ship and take to the boats. If our keel had been ripped open, we should scuttle for a dead certainty. Just as I was speaking, our poor ship was shaken by a kind of earthquake and shuddered from stem to stern, and then, when the next swell came, she was carried right off the rock and was afloat. We breathed again with intense relief, but there was still the prospect of finding rising water in the hold and of having to abandon a sinking ship. We took to the pump, but to our great joy and astonishment, there was no leak. Ah, these were good old timbers which I had bought for sixty pounds in the Boulogne shipyards. The J.B. Charcot was worthy of her name. She was dauntless and unconquerable. Our pride in her was well justified. We sailed her back again to Sandy Cove and had the idea of beaching her in Gazelle Basin to examine her rudder. We were not quite certain whether that had been badly damaged or not. But the next day was so clear that by swinging over the side we could see right under her. The rudder was safe and strong and we had nothing to worry about except Kerguelen weather, which, to tell the truth, was about as worrisome as you will find anywhere in the world. On February, we sailed away again, keeping clear of the rocks and then towing our ship towards the entrance of Fuller's Harbour. From that anchorage, we visited Howe Island in a rowboat and a foot and found a good many sea elephants. But with a telescope, we could see still greater numbers in McMurdo Island and we decided to push on there, through boat passage and into an uncharted bay, which we called Falliers Bay, in honour of the President of the French Republic. We dropped anchor here and stayed another month, killing seals and melting blubber in the same old filthy way. There were two big blubber kettles on McMurdo Beach, and not far away were more than 200 sea elephants, so what did we do but, with a really barbarous sense of humour, set up the kettles in the middle of the herd, with the furnaces all ready for melting the blubber of these poor huge beasts who did not understand their doom. It was a great killing, but really I'm not proud of our exploits, for it was a sheer massacre, and only done out of stern necessity. One need not sentimentalise over sea elephants. Their only use to the world is to provide blubber, and on the rocks of the world's wild places they lead a lazy life, varied only by savage and bloodthirsty fights. But for all that, I did not like the work of killing them. Still less did I like the melting of the blubber, which made me a living grease spot, contaminating anything I touched. If anyone had put a match to me, I should have burned like a tallow candle. Fortunately, nobody was tempted to do so. Having filled 150 casks to the brim, we still had a great store of blubber, and this we crammed into the hold, intending to get straight away back to Observatory Bay, where more casks were in readiness. Before leaving Falliers Bay, however, we had some very bad weather, which kept us prisoners for eight days, with, you understand, that blubber in the hold. I doubt if you could understand what that meant. I think no words of mine could convey to you all the horror of it. It began to melt, and it began to stink, and it went on melting and stinking until it seemed to us that humanity would rise in revolt in every part of the world and come in big ships to Kerguelen to kill us, we should have deserved it. We should have 
almost embraced death gladly to escape from that overpowering stench in our ship's hold. We ran away from it on excursions into the interior and by boat, but the infernal smell followed us whithersoever we went. It followed us around Aldrich Channel, and lay in wait for us in every part of Prince Adalbert Island, and pounced out upon us from two uncharted islands in Phillips Bay. It gripped us by the throat in another uncharted island by Zucker Strait. There was no escape from that appalling smell. To tell the honest but painful truth, we carried it with us everywhere and polluted every breeze. Then we went back to the headquarters of the smell to our poor stinking J.B. Charcot, where we lived with it again and ate it and drank it and breathed it as we sailed with her to Phillips Bay and thence to Daste Harbour from whence the Carmen had departed, leaving a little boat behind, and so on, with ever-increasing smell, right round to Royal Sound, where we came as a horrible pest to the fresh air of these breezy waters. As if the wind would take revenge upon us, it sprang into a furious gale, and lashed us, and howled at us, and swept up the seas to drown us. But those seas swooned, when from our noxious hole we pumped out many gallons of that poisonous, evil-smelling oil, it was too much even for the sea, and it became calm as though it had fainted away in sheer horror. We anchored to the west of Prince of Wales Foreland, and once more in the vain endeavour to escape from the pestilent vapours, I went on land and visited the coast of Shellwater Bay, where I found some very old huts with roofs made of whale bones and walls of turf. It was, though, no good. I added a great deal to my knowledge of geography, but I could not escape the smell which haunted me like a foul fiend. So we ran quickly to Observatory Bay, and at last, by good grace, we were able to get out that half-liquid blubber and melt it, and after a smell that extended for a solid mile, we got rid of some, at least, of its haunting horror. We had consolation also in the knowledge that we had not been alone in our shamefulness. We could smell the Norwegian factory for six miles around in any direction. At night, if we climbed to the heights, we could see the flares of their factory, glowing red like a hellish pit in the darkness, and figures crossing the light like little black devils. At last, our own dirty work was finished, and we washed ourselves and cast away our grease-soaked clothes and put on cleaner garments, though not very clean, and surveyed 180 barrels of refined, sterilised, non-smelling seal oil. We had accomplished our task, and we were tired, but happy and contented now. Those 180 casks had meant much hand labour and back labour to me. The oil inside them had cost us a heavy price of fighting with storms and sea elephants, of many wanderings, of many perilous adventures, of hard toil, of human degradation. It was almost like our life's blood. My brother went from Observatory Bay with LaRose to Jeanne d'Arc Harbour, where he was anxious to get medical attention from the ship's doctors, and afterwards I brought our own little ship along to fraternise with the big steamer. During our long absence, the Jeanne d'Arc had actually been to Durban and back, bringing with her a Frenchman named Monsieur Bossier, who had a concession from the French government for mineral, pastoral and building rights on Kerguelen. We had a few jolly days of holiday with all the officers, going on shore, inspecting the factory work, going for trips in motorboats, duck shooting, exploring the long fjord at the end of the bay, and spending merry evenings with them. It was a magnificent time of ease and luxury and enjoyment, after our long spell of loneliness and toil. 
Then she sailed again on the 26th of April with Monsieur Bossier and Mr. Ellefson, the manager of the factory, who was very ill. Captain Ring took command of the factory while his mate commanded the boat on the way back to Durban, stopping to place a powerful light of the newest type upon the north point of Murray Island so that whaling ships could find the fairway between Balfour and Hurston Rocks at the entrance of Royal Sound. This light still burns brightly and will be of immense help to any vessels passing that way. Then I left on the small steamer Eclair for a whaling trip with some of the Norwegians. In a rather dangerous fog, we came off Cape Digby and steamed to the north of Outerkant Island, where, a little while later, we sighted the first whale spouting its vapoury breath. It is a fine sport, this whaling, though with new scientific methods, a good deal of the danger has gone out of it. When a whale is sighted, one fires a harpoon from a bronze bombard loaded with black powder and with a piece of cork as wadding. The harpoon is just the size of the gun barrel and goes hurtling away to the whale with a hawser which is uncoiled from the gun. It is thin when it first begins to uncoil, but at every hundred yards it gets thicker and ends in a rope of strongest hemp. Sven Foyne, called the King of the Whalers, was the inventor of the deadly harpoon. It is five feet long and four inches in diameter and is made of the best Swedish iron, being very soft and flexible, so as not to snap under a heavy strain. Each boat carries 20 of them and the blacksmiths are always at work straightening them out. In Kogulian are found no right whales, which always float when dead, but only the humpback, finback and blue whales, the latter being 90 feet long. We spent the whole of the day with the Norwegians, going on several of their whaling trips, and then at last, after 15 months on the island of desolation, we decided to set sail for Melbourne to complete our voyage in the J.B. Charcot. With deep grief, however, I was obliged to leave Henry behind. He was far too ill to come away with us and take the risk of a voyage upon which there would be many hardships and certain perils. I waited until the return of the Jeanne d'Arc from Durban, hoping that by this time Henry would have recovered, but that was not to be, and he decided to live on shore and to put himself under strict medical treatment for a disease which was diagnosed as a kind of scurvy. We were very low-spirited when, on the 1st of June, we hoisted sail after a sad farewell with Henry. I also was far from well, and both Agne and I suffered from gastric catarrh. We were touched too with melancholy sentiment at the thought of leaving Kogulian, for we had become familiar with that land of grim and barren rocks. It had been our home for nearly a year and a half. It had been the scene of our adventures. We had explored its bays and channels and its chaos of peaks. The island of desolation was haunted with our own ghosts, with a thousand memories of what we had done and suffered and hoped and fulfilled. We could not part from this stern foster mother without affectionate regret. Yet we went away with a pretense of cheerfulness. We fired a salute of 21 guns from one of our hunting rifles, and we hoisted the signal X-Ray Oscar Romeo. Thank you very much. From the Jeanne d'Arc fluttered the answering message, Tango Oscar Lima. We wish you a good passage. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help 
their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.